Well, I'm going to just share uh, briefly this morning uh, some thoughts. I think both Mike and I were talking about a time of uh, prayer and fasting. And, and sometimes we associate fasting with mostly just not eating or maybe not drinking water for a while. And sometimes we think of it that way, and that can be true. But I, I think also the fasting, the, the main thing about fasting really has to do with uh, time completely between the individual and God. Uh, a time where God, uh, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can, can speak to us um, precisely. And sometimes, sometimes uh, they're personal things. They can be personal things. Uh, personal issues and personal things in our heart, and it can be about others also, which is true. It, it can be both. But, and that was a time I, I, I spent in, in uh, a way, really, it, really, we were back early yesterday because of, uh, you know, just simply because of the storms and all of that. You know, we had a, uh, you know, things happen around here too, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a continuation of that for me. So really just going away was just like, it was like a precursor to just even begin to fast, which I, I really continued to do in a stronger way when we came back. And uh, what a thing that is too. <clears throat> but anyway, <clears throat> in thinking about those things <clears throat> and having my heart before God, and I think it's very interesting you know, how, how often God is so after our heart, meaning <clears throat> that's the place where we treasure up what we, what we believe to be of the most importance and value to us. And so he, he comes after our heart. And I think that's what he, I know that's what he did with me again this morning. He just, uh, uh, just, just woke up and immediately, uh, just really after, right after me personally, and, you know, in my heart. So I started to read uh, certain things, uh, as I usually do. I was beginning to, 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 to study and kind of research things, being led by the Holy Spirit on different subjects. When that stopped, and God just went right into uh, what I believe he had for me personally, and I think that all of us can glean from it. And it's in John, the second chapter. And I'll just read John uh, chapter 2 and verse 13. I'll start at verse 13. And this is what it says. And it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Notice that. And the first thing that God had me to, to, to look at was, it was the Jews' Passover. It really didn't even have anything to do with him. <laughs> because he was there. It was, and notice, that's what it says, the scripture. Sometimes we pass over things so quickly. But it says it was the Jews' Passover. They were celebrating uh, that still the type, the type of Exodus chapter 12 and verses 1 through 13, the Passover, and, and what that would represent. And notice what it says, the Jews' Passover was at hand. They were celebrating this, but they could only do it in a legalistic, a fleshly way. And it says this, and then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he, he went up at that time while they were having their Passover. And found in the temple, it says, those that sold oxen and sheep and doves 
and the changes of money sitting. And I, I looked at that, and, and right away, the Holy Spirit said, see, they sold. So in other words, my house, my place where, where Christ should be, right, where he was present then in his person, but not in their hearts, far, so far removed. And because he was removed, what were they doing? It was about something that was being sold, even in supposed celebration and in memory of that Passover in Exodus 12, uh, verses 1 to 13. It was about money. They sold. Oh, boy. And I, I don't say this in any way apart from me in terms of responsibility and accountability before God, but tell me if that isn't going on today in his church today, us, his church. Okay, again, the church is not a building. It's where we as the church meet and what is going on in that meeting place. They sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. In other words, they were just sitting there. They were relaxing in the place where they were completely not even the least bit degree cognizant of Christ being there. It wasn't even about him. It was about them. They were celebrating themselves and what they thought of the Passover. And that's why it says it was the Jews' Passover. It's very interesting how the Holy Spirit does that. It was the Jews' Passover. It certainly wasn't his. That will be celebrated in the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign, where it will be celebrated again and where all those sacrifices and all of those will be instituted again. And that's where Ezekiel, the 40th chapter and verses 1, right through chapter 46 and verse 24, where it's all instituted again, where Christ is seated there, when he will fulfill that. And how, how long have they missed and been involved with their own Passover? And God forbid that we as his, those that are so intimate and close to him, should celebrate anything apart from him. As if we could do it, and we can obviously effectively. And they were, and they were changers of money sitting. They were just relaxing in themselves. And again, they were the changers of money and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep, the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. I, I've done a study of this years and years ago in isagogics, which means you study the word of God and it's, its historical frame of reference. And when you do that, you realize that here is... Jesus, remember when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come and take my yoke upon, upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, I'm gentle and humble. Well, here's the gentle and humble son of God in perfect humanity in anger flipping tables over. And when you study that, some of those tables were 600 pounds minimum and he's flipping them over. With, with, uh, with anger, you know? And that's what, again, Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, be angry and sin not. He was angry at sin. 
he was angry at. The only thing that you and I should ever be angry at is sin. And that starts with ourselves. And that's where it should stop, too. Now, so he did this. He overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold, there it is again, they sold doves, take these things out hence and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. If you look at the church and where it is today in Christendom, and that doesn't necessarily, in Christendom, when it talks about Christendom, when we say that, you have to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20, right down to uh, verse 26. Because in a great house, and when we talk about the epistles of Timothy, the first epistle of Timothy, as God has brought it out to us through teaching, the first epistle of, of Timothy is how to function in a local assembly in God's order. Second Timothy deals with how to function still as an individual in God's order in the midst of disorder. That's why it says in a great house. In other words, in any local assembly too. But as a whole, there'll be vessels unto honor and vessels unto dishonor. And of course, this was a picture here, but the picture's also in Revelation chapter 3 and verses 14 to 21, where they had no need of anything. They didn't have need of anything. As the church, those that were truly born again, uh, they had taken and been blessed by Christ, but they took the blessings and separated themselves from Christ and were celebrating, doing the same thing that now, back then. Not much has changed. Not much has. But thank God uh, that he hasn't changed. And boy, once again, you just see, I just see uh, God this morning with me, no matter where I've been at, wherever my thoughts are, uh, God forbid they should be anywhere other than him. But even when they are, his faithfulness is still so towards me. The faithfulness of his love operating in the most incredible intimate wisdom. So he overthrew this. He said, you've made my house a house of merchandise. It's all about money. Boy, you can see that in the systems. You see how it functions in the systems all the way down to even today. And then it says, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal, the unbelievable zeal, the deep burning desire for your house, your dwelling place has eaten me up. That's Psalm 69, uh, verse 9, that is being referred to by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. Verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Prove, prove who do you think you are, and what is the sign that you think that you have the authority to do these things? Jesus answered, and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty-six years was this temple in building, and you'll rear it up in three days. You see, sign seekers. Sign seekers. We know that in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Signs are not for them that believe, but for them that believe not. They need constantly God to prove something to them when they miss multitudes of scriptures simply because their thoughts in Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 11, their thoughts are not God's thoughts. Just aren't. Neither was it here in the temple where Jesus was appearing. 
And that's again, God in, 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 in uh, Psalm 10, uh, verse 4, it says, God was not in all their thoughts. In other words, really what the original saying, God wasn't in any of their thoughts. What a, what a place to be. God was not in any of their thoughts. And as a consequence, in Psalm 50, verse 21, they likened God to their own thoughts. Of course, and that's where it says, you thought I was one altogether like you. He said, but watch when I come, I will put things in their proper order. And thank God for the order of his thoughts towards us, the church. You know, the church is made up of individuals. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, corporately in, in chapter 4, but we also see in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13, and 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, it's made up of men, members in particular. In other words, each of us is his temple where he alone should dwell. Where he alone should dwell. And he said again here, in three days, I'll raise it up. But verse 21, he spoke of the temple of his body. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we are, in 1 Corinthians three sixteen, we are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place. Another place that says it like that is in, is in Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Let it dwell within you. Let him be at home in you as his temple, as his dwelling place. And we've said before, thank God, uh, that the Holy Spirit, through taking the things of Christ, is moving things out of our mind, our emotions, out of our temple that are not of Christ and making room only for him. Well, when therefore, in verse 22, he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto what he had said unto them and the way he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. See, in other words, they, they had to see it again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. Name there, of course, it speaks of his person and the accomplishment of his work. Many believed in his names. Look what it says. When they saw the miracles which he did. In other words, he had to prove himself constantly. How many times in my own life has he had to prove to me? It's, listen, it's, it's all about him. There'll never be an ounce of satisfaction in me as his temple apart from him. Never. Not in any thought, not in any word, not in any deed or anything that we do. But they believed because of the miracles. In other words, that mir that what he did appealed more to them than he himself. That's right. And boy, oh boy. Oh boy, how terrible is that? But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of him. For he knew what was in man. In other words, he knew, he knows in us that's what's not of his son. And there'll be no testimony, no true witness of that. Never will be. Now, when we look at the scriptures, and as the Holy Spirit began to correlate these scriptures to me, and to bring me right up to date, 
to, to where we are. And when I say where we are, it starts individually. He's not skipping me as an individual and then going into the hole and, t- and preaching and teaching these things. It starts very individual. And so we see all the way through the scriptures, all the way through with a, with a multitude of them, and we won't have the, the time or the opportunity to get into so many of them, but we see this, what Jesus was accomplishing and what he was fulfilling is found in Isaiah 56 and verse 7. It says this, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Now, of course, in type, and everything he was teaching in John, the second chapter, he was speaking towards the nation of Israel what will be accomplished when he returns to set up the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year millennial reign. You see the accomplishment, and I will see it, because we'll come back with him in Revelations 19, 11 to 16, as he destroys all the enemies of Israel, and is the, is the proof of those that did choose to be with him, those 144,000, which, which are not the Jehovah's Witnesses, unfortunately, which is absolutely correct. There are 12,000 out of each 12 tribes, and when you do the math, you see there's 144,000. But he returns, and we return with him, and he sets first, he, he, he shuts up Satan in Revelations 20, verses 2 and 3, shuts him up, in, in the abyss, shuts him up, and then we rule and reign with him as his own in, in this intimate bride relationship that we have with him as our bridegroom for a thousand years, and we rule and reign with him over the nation of Israel while they rule and reign with Christ over them all over the nations of the world, of the earth at that particular time. And this is what he was saying to them. But in Isaiah 50, and it was based upon even Genesis 49 and verse 10, when he, would talk, when he talked about Judah. And I thought it was very interesting as I read even that this morning. And uh, let me just go there. See, we're going to, you know, when we come to hear the word, God has a lot to say to us. And that's why, that's why we need really amazing uh, concentration. I know that's what I need, and I know that's all of our need, too. And, and, uh, well, in Genesis 49, in verse 8, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brethren will praise. Now, at that time, was Judah, yes, he was of the tribe, definitely. That was speaking to them. But I'll tell you who fulfilled that. And by the time you get to Revelations 5, 5, that's Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lamb to us, having dealt with all judgment on the cross, but he is a lion in dealing in judgment to all those that are outside of him, which we'll see again. But in Genesis 49, verse 8, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brethren will praise. The whole nation of Israel at some point during that millennial reign, they're going to recognize him and praise him. Okay, and it says this, your hand will be in the neck of your enemies. And how many times have we said the neck has to do with the will? And people can operate in their will, but as we see in Proverbs 16, 1, all the way down through the end of the chapter, we make the choices with our will, but the consequences are up to God. And boy, that should be for us very sobering. It'll be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's children will bow down before you. This is looking all the way forward to millennial reign. Well, this will actually happen. 
Judah, it says, is a lion's whelp. And when I read that, I went, wow, he's a lion. What's a whelp? It's a baby. Judah, the living, the real person here, one of, of course, of the sons of uh, Jacob, is Judah. And compared to Christ, what is he as a lion? He's a whelp. (laughs) And yes, God did accomplish things through Judah. He did. But what will he accomplish and what has he accomplished through the lion of the tribe of Judah, the real lion? That's the big one in Revelations 5, verse 5. Judah is a lion's whelp. From, From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as an old lion. Who will rouse him up? Verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. This is talking millennial reign now. We need to understand the scriptures. And it's very necessary for us so we know where we are as the church. And we've said before in in many, many times that two-thirds of the Bible is prophetic. Two-thirds of it. Very necessary for us to know the spirit of the age and spirit of time where we are because there's many deceivers in 1 John 2, 18 and 19 and we need to know the, the spirit of the age in 1 John 4, verse 1 where it talks about Christ. So, back to Genesis 49 and verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter is a king and he rules and reigns with it. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And that's Christ. And unto him will the gathering of the people be. Okay? Again, this goes into, and it's going to go right back into prayer and how that we, as the temple of God, are to be his place where he dwells, to be a temple of prayer. But we see the fulfillment of this again, of of Shiloh coming, and we see it, Again, in the scriptures here, in in Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up unto you a prophet from the midst of you and, and of your brethren like unto me. That's what Moses was saying. In other words, he's saying he's like unto me. I have his nature. I am just a type. Like, and that's where we have Hebrews 4, verse 15. We have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and he will be, but in all points he was tempted, which really it doesn't say tempted, it was tested like us, yet sin apart. He had no sin nature. But that's why Moses is saying here, through the Holy Spirit, saying it through Moses, the Lord God will raise up unto you a prophet from the midst of you and of your brethren, like unto me, unto him will you hearken. And they will for the first time as a nation. As a nation, during millennial reign, boy, will they ever hearken unto him. And if you want some millennial reign verses, again, you can see it here in Genesis 49 and verse 10. You can see it in uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. You can see it in, in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. You can see it in Isaiah, the 11th chapter, in those 18 verses in that chapter. You can see where it's dealing and talking about millennial reign, still future. I don't think it's too far off future for us. 
Of course, the rapture will have to take place before that, something that even I think the majority of Christianity doesn't even believe in anymore. Well, thank God we can still believe him. So he said, you've made my house in Isaiah, again, and and it will be his house properly for the Jews back uh, in future millennial reign. But whose house are we right now as the church? Are we his dwelling place? Is it a place of prayer? In other words, is it a place? And we've said about prayer that prayer really isn't so much a believer going into God and giving over things that are on his heart. Because do we even know our own need properly, even as we ought to? And we should on certain things. But isn't prayer us giving ourselves over to him in Acts 6, 4, especially for leaders, so that he can communicate to us? We're his temple, where he should be able to constantly communicate to us. Then we know how to communicate back to him properly in a spiritual fellowship and intimacy and relationship. There's going to be, and then it becomes a mutual exchange. Okay, so again, and we'll just finish this up. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Holy mountain speaks of his government, where he rules and reigns. Okay? And look what it says here. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. In other words, is there any joy for us, even as believers, in our temple, our human bodies, apart from Christ? Is there any true joy? None. So, and we've said so many times, Psalm 1611, in your presence is what? The fullness of joy. And at your right hand, where Christ sits, there's pleasures forevermore. Those pleasures will be realized, finally, as the Jews as a nation during millennial reign. But for us right now, the height of what we have, the ability to to be a Christian right now, and again, I heard Ben Turkia, uh, just very briefly, a while ago, and he's been a missionary in, in, in old Jerusalem where he's lived for about 25 years now. And how he has, uh, and being as a, you know, one who God has really gifted with the Hebrew people and the Hebrew language being there has said, what a privilege in brokenness. What a privilege for us to be Christians. When he sees multitudes at the wailing wall, trying to make themselves acceptable somehow and make themselves ready for when Messiah would come when he's already come. And thank God that we have that. But he said, to make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices at that time during millennial reign will be accepted upon, it says, my altar. They're going to know that the fulfillment of all those types the type in Exodus 25, 17 to 22 of the mercy seat, all those types in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, especially in those first 10 chapters and on, onward, how he had already fulfilled it all on the cross. And of course, they'll see him. Every eye will see him, them which pierced him. And in Revelations 1, 7, the nation will see him and recognize him. But all others will wail because of him not in repentance, but in the fact that he's real and that he'll ruin, he's ruined all their plans by coming. Oh, God forbid that we should ever, as Christians, get to the place 
where we, should, we would ever think that our plans would be ruined because they wouldn't be of him. And are they? And is it necessary? Well, no, he said they'll be accepted because for my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, verse uh, 8 of Isaiah 56, the Lord God gathers the outcast of Israel. Yeah, the religious system casts us out. Okay? And again, that's quoted again in Psalm 147 and verse 2. He gathers together the outcast of Israel. Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Again, this is referring to millennial reign. This is the second advent when Christ comes back. Okay? And again, again, it says it again and again. Look, look where, it, where it says this. And this is all... God is giving us this counsel so that we can know where we are as the church in, in, in terms of Christ's second advent. And it's being so prepared before our eyes. It's being so prepared right before our eyes, especially in our country, so that we can see these things and, and know that it's close. In, in Matthew 24, 9 to 33, know that the time is close for his second advent. Of course, the rapture of the church must take place before that. But we get, again, we see it again, what he says in Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And this is what it says. Is this house, which is called by my name, by my person and my nature, become, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it. Says, says the Lord, verse 12, but go you now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where, I've, where I set my name at the first, and see what I, I do to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And on and on it goes. The same thing again in Hosea, the ninth chapter. In Hosea, the ninth chapter, this is what it says in verse 15. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, now, in type, Gilgal, in type, okay, speaks of the human spirit. In, in Gilgal, but they would do wickedly still. For there I hated them, meaning he hated what they were doing. He hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of my house. Did Jesus do that in John, the second chapter? Will he do it during millennial reign? Boy, he'll do it once and for all with humans. We see that again in Revelations, the 19th chapter. He'll do it ultimately and forever against every demon and Satan in Revelations 20. We'll see that, verses 6 through uh, 8. We'll see that crystal clear happening. We'll be eyewitnesses to that. Having ruled and reigned with him as his bride for a thousand years, will rule and reign over him. Uh, over all those, with him over all those nations, the nation of Israel and all those other nations. So we see it again. I will drive it out and I will love them no more. All their princes, their rulers, all those in that religious system were revolters. They revolted against me. Thank God that's not us. And it's not, by the way. Okay, so when we read these scriptures, you think it's necessary to know the difference between Israel and the church. 
Is it interesting? And is it very, very important to know that we do not have a Judeo-Christian heritage at all? They're diametrically opposed. We don't have that. We have a heritage in Christ as his church, which did not begin until Acts, the second chapter, when the promise of the second comforter in, in John 14, 16 would be fulfilled in verse 17, where it says that he was, he was abiding with them. The Holy Spirit was, yeah, the fullness in Christ. But when he would be crucified, he'd go up, ascend up, and then send the Holy Spirit down to dwell in us, his temple. We're his temple, not our own. We are his temple, not our own. No, not our own. We do not, we're not to have our own plans. We're not to take our own steps. Because there is a way that seems right unto man. But the ways thereof are the ways of death in Proverbs 14, 12, and in Proverbs 16 and verse 25. And thank God that the Holy Spirit will bring the scriptures back to me personally so that, so that I, by his grace, can share them as much as some even would think that he's, he gives too many. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep doing it by his grace. I'm going to keep giving. I'm going to keep receiving what he gives so that he can give it through me as a vessel. And God forbid anything in me should be in the way. Okay, so in Matthew, as we close this up, in Matthew 21 and verse 13, read what it says in Matthew 21 and verse 13. Well, look at verse 12. And Jesus went up into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. Isn't that interesting? All of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, it is written, my house will be called the house of prayer. Again, he's referring to to uh, Isaiah uh, 56 and verse 7. I will, uh, my house will be called the house of prayer. Are we the house of God? Are we? Individually, as we said in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13, and verse 27, are we? Individually. Everything he did for us was individual in Ephesians 1, verse chapters uh, 1 through 3. Are we? His, individually. Are we our own? 1 Corinthians, again, 6, 19 and 20. Are we our own? Are we? My house will be called the house of prayer, but you, you made it. Notice that? You made it what? A den of thieves. You made it that way. Again, in Mark 11, verse 17. Mark eleven seventeen. 17. This is what it says there. In Mark 11, verse 17... Well, start at verse 15, and it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. You think God wants to bring home a point. And would not allow that any should, should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, is it not written, my house will be called of all nations, of all these nations, a house, really a house for all nations of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. 
Verse 18, And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. Gosh, almighty. <laughs> that goes on today. That goes on today. How they might destroy him. Because all the people was astonished at his teaching. They wanted to destroy him. They saw the people responding and listening to him. And they wanted him. There's a reason why it says that. And we can see that in Galatians, the sixth chapter. We see it in verse 12. Look at what he says about the legalistic system and those that teach it. I, in verse 11, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, circumcision, which is the law, legalism, then is the offense, and, and why do I suffer, yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were cut off, which trouble you. Now, in a physical sense, you cut certain things off, there can't be a life in the womb. <laughs> well, this is saying it in a spiritual sense. Really, the Greek says, I wish they were mutilated so they can't reproduce life after themselves. The legalistic system. Well, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I, I would that they were cut off which trouble you. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, freedom. We have been called unto freedom as his temple. Only use not this freedom and, and liberty that we have for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in that. So we see in 6, we see in, and that was the 5th chapter of, of Galatians, but we see in, in Galatians, the 6th chapter, we see here, in verse 12, it says, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh. <laughs> there we are in 2 Timothy, the second chapter again. To make a fair show of the flesh. There we are, right where we are in Revelation 3, 14 to 21. To make a fair show in the flesh. They constrain you to be circumcised. In other words, they teach legalism because of why? Only lest they should suffer the persecution of the cross. Only that they should. For neither, them, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. But look at what it says. This is the whole reason for it, and Satan's behind it, this system. But there's a desire to have you circumcised. In other words, come under their teaching. What? That they may glory in your flesh. The sad thing is, I hopefully, in any local assembly, that's a true local assembly, that's not going on that it wouldn't be going on. Again, we're going to wrap it up here soon. And again, in Romans, the 12th chapter, here it is. And this is God's thought, continuance in this thing as we look at prayer, us as the temple, that time, the time where we are, the time literally where we are, so that we know how close the rapture is based upon the signs, all the signs of, and we don't have to go by them. God doesn't have to prove them, but we can certainly discern them and see them. All those signs in, Ma in, in Matthew, uh, the 24th chapter, we can see them clearly. But this is what it says in, in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
We're just <laughs> and would that not go into giving ourselves over to prayer in Acts 6, verse 4? Again, especially to leaders, especially to those, and what makes a good leader, one who knows how to follow Christ in their own individual vessel, and it's never even a thing about them, ever. It doesn't have a thing to do. In other words, Christ in the vessel, when you're a true vessel and you're being used by him, you don't have to prove it to anybody. And neither does God have to prove it to us. But he does have his plans, his plans in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and beyond that for us as his church. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy I don't know, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, everything that motivates me is at holiness. What makes me laugh? What makes me laugh? What makes me desire to be around another believer? Is that fellowship? Is fellowship anything outside of Christ? Never. Never ever is at one time. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Notice that? Stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed, be transliterated by the renewing of your mind that you may prove to your even self what that, that is good and acceptable and that perfect will of God. Because every one of us has been given the grace to do so in 12 verse 3. Every one of us have been given that grace by him. And there's no question about it. So, again, because if we don't, we don't give ourselves over, what will we do, okay? What, I'll tell you what we'll do. Our body, that physical body with all its lust patterns, will begin to start to take over the soul. Our self-consciousness will, will be, be given over to our body and the things that it des desires. I don't know, is it money? Huh? Can't serve God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24, can't do it. Some have a problem with that still, and I don't quite understand seeing how the scriptures are crystal clear about it. I mean, what more proof do we need? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I, you know, I'm beyond proving it. Just present the scriptures. Simple. You cannot serve God and mammon, money. You can't. You just can't do it. We read it all they were selling in the temple. Buying and selling and merchant. It was all about money. Why? Because the world infiltrated the church back early for a century in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Very early. And they went out from us in 1 John 2, 19 because they were not of us. Because if they were of us, they would have continued. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Constituted of the same substance of the person and work of Christ. They just weren't. And they went out. Why? What's the question about it? I mean, honestly, when you even look in Matthew, the sixth chapter, it's all about money. What causes the worry? The details of life. Well, I want to make myself as comfortable as I can. Make it just as nice as I can first. And then I'll seek the kingdom in Matthew 6, 33. But I got to take care of all these things first. Yep. Mm -hmm. No, please, Lord. You know, here I am at 68 years old, heading for 69, and I'm going to tell you something right now. They just never did it. And I proved it. And, and I proved it. It doesn't replace him. I'll never be satisfied. 
I'll never be satisfied to be with Christians and just joke around, have some word, joke around, laugh, and then think that's fellowship and we had a good time. No such thing as a good time in the Bible. Ain't no such thing. Fellowship, period. Christ, period. Nothing else. Pure, holy fellowship. And what a privilege that is. What a privilege. True true treasure. Colossians 2, verse 3. The treasure that's in the vessel. In 2 Corinthians 4, and verse 7. The treasure, the treasure, the treasure. Gosh Almighty, the treasure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Because love not the world, Christians. Instead, give yourself over to prayer. Love not the world. Why do we not pray? Why don't we not communicate about everything with him? Why? Because we love the world in some form, the things of the world. We're his, and he loves us, yes, but he says, love not the things, love not the things, the world, neither the things that are of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not an operating principle in his experience. You can't love the world and expect to, to experience God's love for you. You can't. There is no love for God for us in the flesh. Plenty about who we are in Christ and our own individuality. Yes. No question about it. There's no question about it. So love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And these are the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, motivated by the pride of life. See it? Thank God we are not that. We aren't that. Okay? But what we can do is our soul can begin to cleave to the dust. When we don't enter into proper prayer, we don't enter into a proper relationship of intimacy with, with the, our temple being his and not our own, by the way. We, he, bought our, he bought us. We're not our own. But if he doesn't become, we don't become his in our experience in any area, what do we do? Well, the psalmist said it in Psalm 119, verse 25. He said, quicken me. My body is beginning to cleave uh, to the what? To the dust. Where are our physical bodies created in Genesis 2, 7? The dust. Where will we return those physical bodies, 319, to the dust? But my soul begins to cleave to the dust. How's that happen? Do you remember when he said in type, and he said it in type to the serpent that beguiled Eve, which was Satan? And he was really speaking to Satan when he said in Genesis 3 and verse 14, your meat, what you will, you'll crawl on your belly. That's a metonym for your emotions. <laughs> yeah. By the lust of the flesh, that becomes an emotional thing, an emotional attachment. And he said, Satan, you know, through, like the serpent, and the serpent did. Now, what does it do? It slivers on the ground, and dust becomes its meat. Is that physical body made of the dust? Can he get a place in us? Can't take us out of Christ, but can he affect us? In Genesis 3 and verse 14, Psalm 119, verse 25, Genesis 2, 7, and on and on it goes, it can happen. Because it's the lust of the flesh in 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Boy, don't tell me we don't need to be in constant communication through listening to him in prayer, 
being quiet and getting before him and hearing what he has to say to us, is that important? It's so very, very important. I don't know. Is it important to allow one who, who did everything that he did for us to speak to us in terms of his nature, character, and essence, which is love? No wonder. And he has to bring us to each and every single place to know that in Psalm 97, verse 10, all you that love God hate evil. All you that love God hate evil. And that starts with us individually, without any question about it, because we are his temple, are we not? No wonder he said, and I am going to close with this. Remember what? When, and when Christ asked the disciples, who, who do men say that I am? And he asked them that in Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 16 to 18. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him, you know, flesh and blood, listen to this. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Because who cares about God? Who cares about Christ? Who cares about the things of Christ? Who cares about eternity when you're living in, in time for the flesh? Could care less could care less, just like the world. God forbid that we as his, as Christians that he owns, should live just like them, should find the pleasures and the joy and the laughter of those things. God forbid. But he said, and he said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. And he said, upon this rock, Christ, I will future Build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See that? The gates of hell won't prevail against it. He said, and you're Peter. Your name is Peter. Small stone. Look at the Greek words when he said, I am, and upon this rock, Christ himself, I will build you, Petros, Peter, small stone, upon this foundation. And that's when Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, as his mind hearkened back and the Holy Spirit had him write 1 Peter 2, 5, right through, said, you are a, the church is made up of lively stones, all put in their proper place. Become, a, a become this place for him to dwell in. And we do it, it starts individually. Then when we come together in a local assembly, that local assembly, which is a, a stone functioning properly as his and not their own, functioning in a local assembly, that becomes a house where he manifests himself in a local assembly. And even that is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 16. Then we finally become a joint that supplies. Why? Listen, it starts with us not being our own. We don't have our own plans. We don't. We don't have our own plans. We just don't. None of us do. And none of us should. Because we're not our own. We're his who did so much. And he loves us. And he deeply desires intimacy with us. And God forbid the love of the world in any measure should get in the way of a Christian from that love that he deeply loves us with. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well... That was my thoughts, my personal thoughts that God was giving to me in my time of fasting uh, this morning. And it's, as it continues, um, whenever God would have that. But those were my thoughts personally and God's counsel to me personally. 
So if there's any questions, does anyone have any questions or comments this morning? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, what does it mean to be angry at your sin? Well, what's the only way that we could do that? The only way in Ephesians 4, verse 26, it says, be angry, you sin not, and is to function in Christ who is our life. And when I have his life and understand who he is and how he separated everything about the old flesh, the old way of thinking and living, and he, he has become our life, what would we do? We would hate it. Psalm 97, verse 10, all you that love God, what? Hate evil. Do you remember what David, the, the uh, Holy Spirit had, had David say in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I done this sin, right? And did this evil in your sight. So we hate it. We hate it properly. But the only way to do it is in the, in the love and that experience of what Christ has accomplished. Okay, it's never, never anything aside from him. So when I function in him as my life and the Bible makes it clear, we make it clear. Okay, the Bible teaches this, especially in the epistles. The Bible makes it crystal clear. We're not trying to live the Christian life. It's not hard. It's impossible because Christ is my life. He's not calling me to die to certain areas and certain things in my life. He is not doing that. Those are all the programs that come in that will help God help you. God didn't need our help. Last time I checked, it was Christ alone on the cross. He's not calling us to die to certain things. He's calling us to reckon we're already dead and those things are already dealt with and we hate whatever is not of Christ in us. Do you see? So be ye angry and sin not. Did you see what Jesus was doing? You can't tell me, and I could not tell anyone, that Jesus, that when he went on the cross, didn't die for those, but boy was he angry flipping their tables over in John the second chapter. He was angry at sin, but love the sinner. Loves us. And, and, and if you're a parent and you have children, um, you, you can deal with them in anger, but it's an anger of love, love for them, period. And anger, anger against anything that has to do in us that's not of Christ, which is the flesh, and you'll see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. There's an anger towards that. You see, that's why... That's why, the, and there's so much false teaching that's come in because of not understanding these truths and these principles in the Word of God. Listen, as long as God has ever been, how long has God been? Has there ever been a time where God hasn't been? Okay, now we say it like this. Okay, so there's never been any time that God hasn't been. He's eternal. No beginning and no end. That's eternal life. Okay? Now, if that's the case, and it is, as long as God has ever been, he's known all things. Is that correct? Can anything take God by surprise? No, Isaiah 46, verse 10, he declares the end from the beginning. Beginning of what? Eternity, as long as he's ever been. 
Acts 15, 18, known unto God are all those things from the beginning. He knows all his works from the beginning. Revelations 1, 8, 11, and 17, he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. So what that's teaching us is this, that God's love is not a sentimental love. It has to do with justice. You cannot separate the justice of God from his love. Since when? Since he's always been. And when I function in the life that Christ is, his son that he gave us, when I function in him, I will be angry at sin, knowing that it's not who I am any longer. That's Romans 7. 17 and 20, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So all we hate is what he dealt with and what we're not any longer. Be angry, yes, and sin not. You know, there's a way, there's a, and it even goes into teaching, presenting the word through the flesh in anger about things in believers' lives. But it's apart from love. That's why it says in, in Ephesians 4.15, you speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love in Ephesians 4 verse 15 is being angry and not sinning. <laughs> it's beautiful balance. A beautiful balance. So does that help you to understand? So you just fun you're functioning in the love and justice of God and you're one with him in all that evil that you're no longer... <laughs> Isn't that great? It's so awesome. The finished work in John 19.30 is so incredible. I mean, what we have in him, and no wonder Ben would say, Ben Turkia, oh my, he would say, oh boy, what is it, the privilege that we have being Christians? It's such a privilege that we have. So, does anyone else have a question or a comment? I have a comment. Yes. Um, that was very encouraging. Well, see, the enemy, the, where do we grow? We, do we grow apart from trials in 1 Peter 1, 7? No. Job 23, verse 10. Everything that Job went through in 23, verse 10, he said, when I get through them, I'll come out as gold. True value, true treasure, true. And many times the enemy will, will cause the believer and even give the believer things that were from God, but use them for his own design to make the Christian comfortable, listen, to get away from trial. Yeah. Get away from it. Right? But the way to glory is through what? Suffering some kind of a trial. And the, and the thing we want to do in our flesh, in our natural thinking, is to escape it. How? By means of some kind of comfort. But really, if we truly desire him, and he's ignited that true desire in us, we can go to, to go to those other things and even take them and participate. But boy, do they get old so quick. 
We drop him and turn right back to him. You know what he's doing with all of us again? He's refocusing us back into a place where he can love us. He doesn't want these things interfering with his love for us. Somehow, I mean, why are we here? (laughs) Here we are in this world system that hated, crucified, because it rejected God and humanity. What makes us think that we have anything else here other than Christ? I mean, we don't have, there's nothing else. And, and furthermore, it's all going to be burnt up. Yeah, read 2 Peter 3, 10, 11, 12, all the way to 13. Read it. It's all going to be burnt up. All those things we seek to comfort us. It's all going to, literally, it's going to be burnt up. All those things that we, say, say I was a multimillionaire. Remember the time that when this guy that had these barns, you see that, Luke? In the Gospel of Luke, he had these barns. And he was being blessed. He said, wow, I'm going to tear these barns down and make bigger ones. And Christ said to him, you're a fool. You're not even going to see tomorrow. He didn't take those barns and what was in them with him. He didn't. It's all going to return to the dust. Remember, even again in Isaiah 2, verse 20, those that had that gold and silver, they're going to, they're going to see the true value of it. They're going to cast it to the moles and the bats because it's useless apart from him. Literally, useless. Our time, our finances, our bodies, everything is useless apart from being given over to him. Seriously, it's just useless. Boy, boy, thankful for the love of God, thankful for the love that we have, because this world system is on a collision course with eternity in 1 John 2.17. It's going to pass away, and all that with him. And then we're going to rule and reign. And guess what it's all going to be about? Christ and Christ alone. To the glory of God and to our blessing. And that's a fact. He just constantly has to refocus us. He does. Because we can let the guard down. We can. We can. We can let it down. Even when we get together in fellowship, we can have a measure of the word, and then it can go right back into something else like this. Honestly, and that's why before, even before I left, I said, keep going. Keep going forward. Go forward. That means fellowship. That means even when we get together. What causes us to laugh? What causes us to desire and even appreciate being with someone else? I mean, come on. Truthfully, is there anything other than Christ? Does he, in Colossians 1.18, have preeminence in himself? He does. Does he desire that in us? In Colossians 2.19 is our head. And what is a head? How to think properly. And is there any thought process that's proper outside of Christ? No, we have the mind of Christ. You know that. 1 Corinthians 2.16. But God forbid we should know how to function in it precisely. That we should know the things of this Bible precisely. And if we don't, oh boy. Believe me, that's what makes up, that's what makes up a full functioning local assembly. Is when each one is in their place. Not comparing themselves with someone else. But functioning. Functioning in their proper place. There's a reason for that. Then we become true witnesses. That's a true witness. A a temple that's filled with Christ and Christ only. And then we come together. 
and function properly as a local assembly. Very key, very key. Anyone else? A question or a comment? Well, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, when he said that to them, first, first, they used the cross to try and destroy Christ and humanity so they could continue to function in their own system apart from him, getting some kind of glory. I don't need this person. I can do it on my own and I can function. You know, all that leads to is comparison constantly. You know why a lot of Christians struggle? It's because of that very thing. Yeah, they, they have a con, con, and when I have a constant uh, uh, need to compare myself constantly, then I'm going to seek to desire acceptance from that person, and I'm just going to struggle. I don't know. You know, I just don't know. I do know, I do know what Christ desires in a local assembly is a full functioning local assembly. Each of us functioning in a proper place in a specific area. I know that for a thousand percent fact. I know it. You know, God reveals it constantly. And there's no comparison. When I'm not my, when I'm my own, there's a lot of comparison, a lot of struggle. When I'm not my own, there's an absolute freedom. There's no freedom in comparison. There's no freedom. There's none. It's not wise. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. There's no wisdom in that. Comparing ourselves by ourselves. Knock it off. Okay? I don't have to know that. I, I do know that I'm called to a certain place when I'm fed properly the way I need to be fed and in a way that I cannot do it myself. That is crystal clear God speaking volumes. truthfully. And believe me, by the grace of God, in all humility, I, w I wouldn't change that for a thousand percent, for anything, because it's truth. And I know it to be true. Know it for a fact. Know it for a fact. You know, God had to teach me things and learn. Seriously, as a 66-year-old, as, as he had to send me back here to, to come to this place where he could teach me things. Again, constantly. Teach me these things. In a way I couldn't do it. In a way I didn't have the skill. Not that it wasn't mine, but he gives that skill to certain individuals in a certain place. And there's babes, young men, and spiritual dads. 1 John 2, 12 to 14. It's just the way it is. Why are we What are we struggling over? The time is short. That is way too short for our own thoughts. Way too short for our own plans. Way too short to struggle in things that we're, and we struggle in them because we're ignorant of the scriptures not having been taught. And sometimes we struggle with them because we want to know those things. We don't want to have it God's way and humble ourselves and receive them through another vessel. And by the way, all that individual is is a vessel. Jeez. We're going to compare vessels with vessels or we're going to love the treasure that God has placed in local assembly to function properly. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to be playing games. 
Boy. They're going to be playing games. Nothing but playing games. Playing games, struggling, being up one moment, down the next, up again, down the next. Nope. Nope. No reason for it. I'll tell you the reason for it is because of a lack of teaching, or if I, if, if I do have it, not continuing in it. That's a fact. This is true. This is true. There's a reason why God's doing things the way he's doing them. There is. And his plan is perfect. His way is perfect, okay? Well, there's no question about it. It's perfect. His way is perfect. Psalm 18.30. No question about it. His place is perfect, okay? And you will have freedom, and you won't struggle if you know that you're in a place where God would have you. Because if you struggle, that could be a massive evidence, massive evidence. And it could be, and I'm not, I don't know, I honestly don't know, but I know that it would be evidence that somehow I've got my own plans, and I'm struggling as a result of that. I mean, again, I'll struggle because I'll compare. And when I compare, there's no freedom. There's no flow. My fellowship's cut off. We, we, listen, you don't need anybody, and I don't need others, even those that I minister to, to prove who I am. If I don't know that in Christ, then I'll use them to prove to me who I am. That's right. And it's wrong. It is. It's dead wrong for any of us. And I don't know who's what or anything, but I know God does. And I know that I have his thoughts by his pure grace. Because he just makes it known to me continuously. Just like he would to any of us, right? All right, well, if there's no other question or comment, does anyone have um, any more question or comment? No? Okay. Well, would you like to pray, Mike? Close us in prayer. Amen.